When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 106, The Anglicization and Dysphoria of the Welsh. In 1294, citizens across the former principality in the March of Wales revolted against various forms of English perceived unfair treatment, caused in part by heavy taxation we mentioned during the last episode, and the general lack of representation from the Welsh upper class in the decision-making even amongst those of the old Welsh loyalists to the English crown. This was occurring as Edward was trying to fight for land in France and just before the wars with Scotland heated up. This led to an aborted uprising in 1294-95, which was the last great chance for the principality to gain its independence for a century. It ended before it really began, as as many as 10,000 Welsh surrendered without a blow being raised in the south. As part of their penance for taking part in this revolt, many were called to serve in the English military and to fight for the Plantagenets in France. In the north, where the revolt was the hottest, the Welsh made up some of the forces in Edward's army, including 500 men from Anglesey and around 2,000 more from the Marches and Powys. This meant that nearly 20% of Edward's army were actually of Welsh origin when he took the 14,000 strong forces on the familiar route to Carnarvon. A popular uprising of Welsh nationalism, this was not. In fact, some academics contend that English tenants were as upset as their Welsh counterparts in South Wales and took part in these revolts, especially in the Southwest. Either way, most of the battles were small and decisive. The English won the field and the rebels were defeated. The biggest rebel captured was Madog Ap Llewellyn, who led the northern forces. He was defeated by the Earl of Warwick in Powys near Welshpool, and the presumptive Prince of Wales fled the field only to eventually be captured and taken to London, where he remained a prisoner of Edward and one of the few to survive the defeat in this period. His sons would also survive and be some of the few again to not be utterly destroyed. As we talked about in a previous episode, Edward was presumed to be a favorite in parts of Wales, but his own favorite, Hugh Dispenser the Younger, who was a son of a marcher lord, obviously also named Hugh Dispenser, confusingly, in Glamorgan, was a different matter. The Dispensers came to power in part because one of the great marcher lords and a key member in Edward's defeat of Llewellyn the Last was Gilbert de Clare. We have mentioned him as part of the southern flank against Llewellyn's forces in the 1280s. In 1314, he was serving Edward II in the Battle of Bannockburn in Scotland. This battle, of course, was a key victory for Robert the Bruce, setting the stage for Scottish independence. His death led to a power vacuum in the south. 
which initially saw crown appointees that were considered to be power hungry. And a lot of them basically led to dissatisfaction and led to a localized rebellion led by a man named Llewellyn Bren, a local Welsh noble. Bren and his forces were defeated after sacking and burning Kerfilly, though they were unable to take the castle. In fact, the castle has never been taken. Uh, they raided a few other towns and castles in the area, but with the might of the marchers at hand, Bren surrendered. After his capture, Bren won favor with some of the marcher lords who captured him, and was a tool in the hands of the English nobility in their fight with the crown during a period of weakness in leadership. In 1317, the dispensers, as we mentioned earlier, took the former declare lands for themselves. This meant that much of the southeast was now controlled by the father of Edward II's favorite. But the move won no real favors in Wales, and many disliked the dispensers, including powerful lords such as Roger Mortimer, a key member of Edward I's court and one of those who was in opposition to Edward II. Dispenser would hang Bren in 1318, which would be seen in the no nobility in that southern region as a sign of how treasonous the dispensers were and how they needed to be overthrown, in part because Bren was seen as noble. Bren had given up himself to save his troops and had been seen by the English as something of an example of doing things in a chivalrous and right way, and thus they felt that he should have been released, and much like they would have expected themselves at that time, during a period when most of the time when a noble was captured, they didn't necessarily get slaughtered. They were quite often just ransomed off. So the idea that you would capture this man and then execute him for leading what amounted to a minor fracas in their eyes was an issue and something that they were not happy about. One interesting feature of this discussion is the rise of this Welshman to these noble positions in this period. Since the conquest, those in the Welsh nobility who were loyal to Edward were rewarded with minor positions and land, but in Anglesey, Griffith Lloyd was named as sheriff of the Shire in 1305, one of the first to serve in that position, who was Welsh. They were largely still subordinate, of course, to the English in superior roles, but by no means did they get completely shut out of power to some degree, and as the 14th century would roll along, more and more Welshmen would serve in positions in Wales, and slowly the underclass of nobility would become very much Welsh. Another development was the increasing use of Welsh troops by the English in other wars. Men from Anglesey and Glamorgan were used at the battles of Bannockburn, several hundred of whom served to Clare at the defeat and were, uh, quite a number were killed. There are no hard and fast numbers about how many of the Welsh served the English crown in Scotland, but Professor Adam Chapman feels that there must have been thousands in the army, especially during the Battle of 1296 that Edward had won. However, there may be ulterior political reasons for the raising of the Welsh soldiers. It may have come about because of the need to ease the demands being made on the increasingly testy lords in England. Many soldiers serving in Gascony and Flanders at the beginning of the 14th century before the crown had inevitably ended up coming from Wales, many of whom came from West Wales around Haverford and Carmarthen. At this same time, Edward was creating a retinue within his house of Welshmen, who were initially made up of the Welsh nobility, who were kept 
to keep locals from misbehaving, but eventually seemed to migrate into something called the King's Welshmen, who were both diplomats, spies, and in some cases, auxiliary guards for the kings. This sort of position of the Welsh nobility going from hostages to respected underlings is something that we're seeing happen fairly quickly. It's it's almost surprising, especially in Anglesey, which is one of the strongholds of the old monarchy in Wales, to be so flipped over is, is a fascinating thing to see. And it does leave you to wonder how much of the loyalty, you know, 20 years later to 30 years later in this case, had died away and this feeling of nationalism had slipped away from some of them. Uh, I mean, the realities were that was kind of where they saw their options. Those Welsh soldiers that fought for Edward did so in part as their feudal duty to their lord, but it was also likely due to the rewards they would receive. In an era of mercenary armies taking food and plunder, as well as the possibility of capturing someone important enough to create a ransom, this could be very lucrative for a person who may have been a very poor person or at best middle class being a soldier was an option of actually making wealth and importantly, social rank. In some cases, these social ranks, money or fame or infamy followed those who fought, but also so did death, debilitation and disillusionment would also come about. There were many who tried even to desert, as they did in Scotland. So it wasn't as if there were, you know, a massive increase in every circumstance. Obviously, it's a war. The likelihood of dying is pretty large. Fighting in the medieval period, much like it had been going back to the ancient periods, was a bloody, hard-fought, face-to-face horror show that would quite often lead to dismemberments, lead to permanent maiming. And of course, in an era when antiseptic was still kind of iffy, they weren't necessarily safe from having problems come after the battles. And so your death likelihood was much higher. But by the same token, it did give you a chance to make your way in the world. And if you succeeded, which of course, in much like armies of today, they would brag about the successes and avoid talking about the failure. While many in Wales certainly suffered and some profited, soldiers likely had the quickest path to titles and financial rewards of any in the period. In some areas, like Switzerland and the German Low Countries, mercenary work was something of a profession to follow, not unlike in the views of a modern military, where one would go in part because of the financial benefit. Nowadays, you'd look at like school benefits that you might receive. In other words, your school might be paid for in the military, or you may receive benefits such as, you know, uh, stipend to travel the world. There's all these kind of things that they kind of enamor you with when you join a professional military. And very much the same idea would have happened in the Middle Ages when you have free companies and mercenaries running around. Of course, even with that, this is a very dangerous and hard. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. 
Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add ons every week, like breakfast, on the go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. job, if you want to call it that, to take in the heat of a hundred years war. But it's because of all the fighting and all of the flowing need of military might in France that actually allowed free companies to blossom and become important and actually earn livings for their soldiers. They certainly would have more appeal than being in some community paying taxes, marrying the local lass, and working your hand to the bone in farming or ranching or living some harbit and seed life. So you can see the idea and the nobility and the romanticism of military life, certainly in an era where chivalry was a big draw and the idea of courtly love and concepts behind those things which were becoming popularized, especially in France and in England. This kind of stuff would have been filtering down in different ways to different people. And in a nobility which is educated and, and taught to read, they would that would be some of the things they would be studying. So obviously this concept of the noble warrior would be important. And of course, writers like Chaucer who write about knights and soldiers and different things like that would have also been a part of that cultural draw as with the bards going around in Wales talking to nobility and talking about the stories and the things that they passed down the legends and the mighty tales that would come forward 
it's difficult during this period of Welsh history not to talk about larger events, of course, that are taking place, as the Welsh are largely becoming encompassed in the growing combat in France over the title of King of France. By the time of Edward III, the Hundred Years' War, Welsh soldiers could be found on both sides, including the presumptive heir of the Kingdom of Gwyneth, Owen Ap- Thomas Aparodri, better known today as Owen Lagloch. And I probably didn't pronounce that very well, so we'll just say Owen the Red Hand. Owen was the last remaining direct descendant of Llewellyn the Great and had fought for France during the war against England. His father had been the son of one of Llewellyn's sons who did not fight in Llewellyn's wars and, in fact, remained in England. Owen, on the other hand, was one of those who went to France and raised a free company. We'll talk about his career in more depth later, but he was one of the last direct lines to Llewellyn and the last of the so-called older lines, or at least the Gwynedd lines, that had inheritance to the title of Prince of Wales. Free companies were, as I mentioned earlier, bands of mercenaries in France who fought for the highest bidder and would be made up of soldiers who stuck around after terms of services ended. They could be made up of many different nationalities. There wasn't necessarily one specific one, although quite often they would remain in cultural groups because, of course, it's easier to communicate with each other if they all speak the same language. But in an era where French was becoming used on both sides, because, of course, you have to remember at this period of Norman history, they are speaking French, not really English yet. So there is this movement, of course, towards English, but to this stage, it's still mostly a French-speaking nobility. So they would have commonalities that way. In a way, these were the inheritors of later Vikings, and in their roles of raiders and pillagers and all of that kind of thing, but they did so under strict command of the payee. In other words, if the king of France said, go attack this town, they weren't supposed to go wander off and just ransack another one. They were supposed to just do what they were paid to do. Some of these Welsh troops, of course, would join these bands and create these free companies, which were fairly successful in this period. Back in Wales, after the conquest, the church had seen an influx of money in Wales as Edward sought to get the Welsh clergy on side by funding compensation for various pillagings that had gone on. He paid £23,000 to 107 churches and individuals, such as bishops, basically trying to to offer compensation, for lack of a better phrase. This may explain how the writings in the Chronicles of the Princes is very bland on the subject of Edward after the conquest. They seem almost a little positive, and you can imagine this did a lot to kind of mollify that. Of course, being a conqueror helps too, as we know history is often influenced, at least by the winners. It is thought that Edward did this at the urgings of the Archbishop Peckham, in part to mollify the Welsh churchmen and to put control of the Welsh church and the principalities from the marcher lords who were growing in influence in their local churchmen and in ways that could not have sat well in London or Canterbury because, of course, the marcher lords are not strictly responsible to the king. They are, in effect, laws to themselves, and so they would often appoint their own bishops and Areas like Bangor in the Principality would conflict with areas like Llandaff in Cardiff because 
both of these areas wanted to be sort of the sea of the local Welsh people. Meanwhile, Canterbury doesn't want either of them to have that. So often they would sort of strike back against one another. This is part of the reason why documents that we have now that are historical documents talking about the inheritance of various parts of Wales come out of these two places in part because Llandaff is trying to prove that its area had better demands for certain things and thus trying to prove the links through history, in quotes. So there's a lot of speculative and shaky history that's coming out at this point. And this is where a lot of the writings about Arthur and so much of what we sort of understand to be Welsh Middle Ages starts to coalesce in this period. And it becomes a very big thing. And we're going to go way into all of this later, talking about sort of the cultural aspects of the changes in Wales and how the national mindset and focus change from being one of a inward looking shut off population in the north and the south which had been dominated by the english to sort of becoming a mixture of both and how that kind of influenced both sides and we'll also talk a little bit about the language and how it changed in both the north and south and how those were reflected out and so even bards and poets also, of course, had to find new patrons because all of their leadership was gone. And as part of the milieu of Welsh society, they would then become under patronage of English and Welsh lords. Praise poems for new governors, not far behind. You know, delights about the various cities that Edward had been set up starts to get written. You know, there's concepts about why our area is better than your area, you know why Cardiff is better than Swansea, to use a modern parlance. All of these things would start to come about, in part, as these different writers started to influence the population. Yet amongst this, there was still hatred on both sides for the other. Make no mistake, there were certainly some Welsh who profited, some who did not care, and some who saw their lives stay mostly the same, but that was not true for all. In the Principality, there were still those who tended to see the Welsh as being different, and through the English lens especially. For the Welsh, conversely, they saw their bardic prophecies that Wales would take back Britain one day, that they would win this war and rid themselves of the English. And for the English, that kind of talk and that kind of apocalyptic ideal was something to fear, not something to praise. According to Professor Davies, the Burgesses were paranoid of the Welsh attack. He quotes one saying, If the Welsh have their way, they declared, there will shortly be not a single Englishman alive in Wales. The Welsh, stated a Burgess from Denby, are almost more prone to the, than ever to rise against the king. The English of Denby dare not leave the town. The Welsh are becoming arrogant, cruel, and malicious towards the English stated the Burgess of Carnarvon, while those in Rudland declared that if firm action was not taken, the English would be exterminated from the land. Which, of course, is very unlikely. But when you have people that are being mistreated, overtaxed, and being treated as second-class citizens in their own country, you can understand why they would be a little put out and not very happy with those that have sort of superseded them to places of authority. At the same point, a lot of these early mighty 
as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the medieval ideas about the rise of Arthur begins to grow in favor, as you can imagine in this period, in an era when romance writings and chivalry are the idea of a pure king in ancient times was something of a cultural tome. The development of the idea of the ancient king looking to rise up to lead his people back to prominence, that would have something of a pull for anybody. And of course it did. The Arthurian tomes and ideals were massive in France, an area which had nothing to do with the Welsh background on this, and nothing to do with the Old North or Cornwall or any of those areas. Yet it became massively popular during this period and would continue to do so. And in fact, it's French writers that take much of what we have and turn it into what we have now of Arthur and the concepts of the court and the concepts of Guinevere and Lancelot and all of these start to become developed by people who are not Welsh and the ideals and reasons why they are there and what they represent as a mythology change dramatically. And of course, it's this development of this ideal that there's something ancient in this people, some nobility, much like in a way, if you think about it from a religious standpoint, that the Bible's Jews were looked upon as this downtrodden people who someday would be brought back and become the dominant class again, led by a new leader, a messiah, someone who is both ancient and modern, a representative of God on earth, effectively, who would lead them to success. Well, this ideal, of course, is encapsulated in the medieval concepts of Arthur. Arthur is quite literally the Welsh messiah. He is someone who will bring about the downfall of those who have oppressed the British, or in this case, the Welsh. He is someone who is obviously infallible because he is ancient, and he lived this noble lifestyle as recorded by, in quotes, historians and poets and all of these people. And so the idea that he would come back and rescue the Welsh would have a very strong pull and something that would be very dramatically important. The fact that it grew popular in France would have also fed this nervous feeling that must have and obviously resided in English minds. Already France was allied with Scotland, a kingdom look, looking to expand the Celtic alliance it already had felt it had with Ireland. And the concept that they would try this again and create a new Welsh nation would have certainly had a few in power very nervous. So while peace mostly reigns in Wales during this period, the seeds of the coming conflict are growing as the conflict in France is growing. And many, both in Wales and outside of Wales, English or Welsh, knew that the status quo was not working and that they were on a knife edge. But within that knife there was something worse to come, something that would distract both sides, and that was the coming of the Black Death. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can reach me online on Twitter at Welsh History Pod and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Thank you everyone for listening. I hope you have a great day. We'll talk to you later. Ta-ta. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. 
Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.